Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. You could be seated, but before we pray, I wanted to make you aware of just a couple of uh, a prayer request for us just to be praying about as a body um, and as a people and some, some, some family members and some friends of, the fa- uh, of family members. And so um, one particular family that's been on the prayer guide that we send out, and it's a, it's a, it's a Google Doc, so you can always um, access that information um, through the link that we send out. It's sent out each week in the weekly update. But on that prayer guide, we've been praying for uh, Josiah and Hannah Karstner's niece, um, little Katie Lynn, who was born um, with a brain tumor um, that was um, cancerous. And sadly, on Thursday, Katie Lynn took a turn for the worse and she passed away um, unexpectedly. Really, she had been progressing, doing very well. So I want to ask you to please pray for the Karstner family. Again, Josiah and Hannah, it's their niece. Pray for mom and dad, Josh, and for Lindsay um, Karstner as well, please. I ask you to be praying for um, Miss Myrtle and her family. Um, even this week, Miss Myrtle had a nephew, uh, Jamie Yunt, who passed away. And Miss Myrtle's brother, um, Mr. Ralph, has been very ill for the past few weeks. So I would ask you to be praying for them as well. And the truth is, is I recognize that many of you come in this morning with your own burdens. Many of you may be watching via the live stream with your own burdens. Um, The other thing I would ask that you just be praying for us as a a body and as um, elders and as staff as we figure out and try to lead forward um, in the midst of a global pandemic, how to do that in a very safe manner. And so um, let me just say to those of you that are joining us on live stream, you you are missed. We love you and we miss you. I'm not saying that in any way to guilt you into saying, hey, you need to be here. But what I want you to know is that it may look like it's business as usual here. We're singing and we're praying and we're preaching and doing all of the things. But I don't want you to think for a second that your absence isn't felt here with us. It is. And we're trying to think about ways that we could have more folks to to join us in the gathering, that we understand the, the purpose of the gathering. This is an expression of what the church is. We're called out of the world and we're called to Christ and called to one another. And this is is no small thing what we do here. And so we're trying to, in a very safe manner, think about ways that we can um, make room for more people. Um, I know this morning, uh, you know, there's there's plenty of room, but in weeks past, there hasn't been room. And so we have ordered uh, 250 chairs. And so we will be doing away with the pews at the end of the month and making room um, here for people via chairs so we can space them out better. We could just seat more people in chairs than we could um, in pews. And so we're doing that. We're currently thinking of ways. We know that this has affected a lot of young families that are, it's just hard for them to be here because they've got young children. And so we're trying to think about uh, steps in place, how we can safely add back kids point. Um, so we're putting a plan in place even, even as we speak, even this morning, Ms. D and I talked about uh, what's the, you know, about some adjustments to the plan. And so more information will be coming out for that. For those of you, especially that have young families, babies and toddlers, um, we've opened up 
the, the mom and baby room back in the back again. And so it's ready if a, if a mom with their, uh, again, moms and babies, family room is downstairs, but moms and babies, if you want to join us, it's being live streamed. That room is open and usable. Um, and so it's, it's all there. All right. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you in your strong and in your mighty name. We just sang a song about you, Jesus, being victorious and you being alive, and we believe that about you. And we believe, Jesus, that you draw near to the brokenhearted. We see that in the scriptures and we, we've experienced that in our own lives. Many of us in the room, part of our story is it includes a, a, a season of suffering, even some of them in this room, deep suffering. And what we found to be true is that you are present and you are near us in times of suffering, that you send your spirit to us that comforts us. That Jesus, as you departed, you knew that we would need a comforter. And so you sent the Holy Spirit. That's next week's message. It's even we see it in today as well, that you send the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit is the paraclete. He empowers us to accomplish the, minute, the, minute, the mission. He enables us to do ministry. He, he enables us to persevere in our faith. And he, with real powers, brings comfort. And so, Jesus, we pray for families that are experiencing brokenheartedness even this morning, and we lift them up to you. And, Lord, we pray that you would comfort them. And, Lord, as we um, open up your word, open up our hearts, Jesus, come and by the power of your spirit, break up the fallow ground that is our hearts. That Jesus, you, one of your longest parables is parable about the different types of soils. And the, the truth of the matter is in that is that our hearts are to be fertile soil. It's for us to do the work of being present with you and open to you and open to your word. Even when you have difficult things to say to us, that you come to to challenge us and to change us, Jesus. And so we give you the freedom to do that. May your word be at work under the, under the power of the spirit in the preaching of your word that you may change us and you may grow us as a people that we may, that we may live out this mission that we read, this mandate that's been given to us for your glory. We don't take this lightly, but we, we joyfully say yes and amen to this because we are a people who are fervent for your glory. We want to see your glory, Jesus, spread and your fame be known throughout the, throughout the nations to the very ends of the earth. And we want to participate with you in that. And so make us missionaries. May, us, may we see ourselves as missionaries for your fame. We pray this, amen. Okay, let's, uh, let's get started. So keep your Bible open. I'm gonna lay the groundwork as I have every week that sometimes it feels like my introduction is 25 minutes in, but again, we're telling the storyline. And so my first task that's in front of me isn't just to explain um, the Great Commission to you in Genesis, I mean, in Matthew 28, but it's to go back and to show you and to place that text in its context and to say what's happening here in Matthew 28 isn't anything new. It's, 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 it's part of the storyline of the Bible, that this is what Jesus is saying to his disciples. So again, this is a post-resurrected Christ who has yet to ascend to the Father. He's spending about, about 50 days with his disciples before he ascends again on high. And while he's spending that time after his resurrection, he gives them this command. I mean, moments later, they're gonna watch Jesus rise. Acts, the first chapter, describes that to us. 
But here, as he's meeting with his disciples and he issues out this, this mandate, this command, we know it, most of us know it as the Great Commission. As he's giving this commission to his people, this isn't anything new. We could go all the way back to, to Genesis and see this occurring, that what's happening here is just a reiteration of the very creation mandate. In fact, we could think about that, that God's plan is the plan of multiplication, that God has created. We looked at that in Genesis. God has created the world. And then what God is doing is he is filling the, the world. He's filling the earth. He's not just filling the earth with plants and animals and people, but God is filling the earth with his glory. That's important for us to know. It's starting in Eden, but he's filling the, the whole earth with his glory. And his glory comes as, his, as, as image bearers are multiplied, people that are aware of, of God's majestic beauty and as they flourish in creation. So God's plan is a plan of multiplication. God's glory is what's being multiplied in the earth. It occurs as his image bearers are reproduced and they're aware of his majestic beauty as they flourish in his creation. That's the whole plan that God has put in place. We could go to Genesis, the first chapter in the 28th verse, and we see what's called the creation mandate. I'm gonna call it creation mandate 1.0 because we're gonna talk about, about four of them over the next five minutes. We're gonna rock and roll, okay? But the first one is given to Adam and Eve. And here's the creation mandate. It's found in Genesis, the first chapter, the 28th verse. It says, and God blessed them. And God said to them, again, Adam and Eve, here's what I want you to do. I want you to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so it's a threefold um, mandate is happening here. The first fold he's saying or is the context for the mandate that will come, and it's under the blessing of God. See that first, God blesses them. The blessing of God is God's creation that he's created for us. I mean, it's a blessing, right? I mean, think about you and I, we're living in, we're not living in Eden. Like, you know, this isn't Eden. This is a fallen, cursed world and earth and creation that we're living in, but isn't it gorgeous? Yeah, right? I mean, have you looked outside lately? Like the trees are changing color. Like my wife loves the fall, me not so much because I know it's coming next winter, but she's like, oh my gosh, look at that tree. Isn't it gorgeous? And it is, and she's right. And you go into any place in this earth. I mean, the most beautiful place is right here in the heart of the bluegrass, right? But you go to other places on the earth, and you see majestic beauty all around us that God has blessed us with. It's a blessing to get to live in this world and enjoy this creation. So that's a blessing. But more importantly, the blessing that Adam and Eve held is the blessing of God's presence, that God was with them in the garden. His presence was made known, made manifest among them. And so the blessing is twofold, but notice also then there's the mandate. It's in the context of a blessing, but the mandate is be fruitful and multiply. He's telling them to fill the earth. What he's saying is, here's the command. It's the command of procreation. I want you to go forth and I want you to make babies to my glory. Amen? Amen. Make more image bearers. Fill the earth with image bearers. This is pre-fall giving this, this declaration to Adam and Eve. The third part of the mandate is to subdue the earth. Now, sometimes this gets uh, some, some negative press to it, but the Hebrew word is the word kabosh, and it just means this. It means to gently cultivate the earth. It's the opposite of violently 
Some people have used that and they say, that's how we can justify what we've done with coal and that's what we've done with the force and that's what we've done you know, in destroying creation is we're subduing it, but that's not the understanding that God is setting forth in his scriptures here. He's not saying go and destroy my creation. It's the opposite. I want you to be a steward of my creation. Be a good steward of it that man is called to cultivate the earth's resources, harnessing them for human flourishing. We're to do, we're to steward that. And all of this mandate, all parts of it is to be done for the glory of God and to the glory of God. We're to show gratitude to God for his creation and for what he has done, even post the fall. We're to show gratitude to God and the resources he's put in this earth, the ability for us to flourish. Again, this is pre-fall. Adam and Eve, they sin against God. And so God judges them and curses them. God judges the whole world and brings a flood, but yet in the midst of his judgment, he preserves one, per, one family, the family of Noah. So you have the flood that destroys the inhabitants of the earth. One family is placed inside of an ark. They're kept, they're preserved through God's judgment. They're released. And so now you have Noah and his sons. And in Genesis, the ninth chapter, you have the creation mandate 2.0. Look at it. It sounds a lot like Genesis 1.28. It says, and God blessed Noah and his sons. And he said to them, same command, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Noah ends with Noah falling into some kind of sin. It's a little blurry. The picture's a little blurry, but it sounds a lot like Adam and Eve. Noah's in the vineyard and he's drunk and he's naked and his sons have to cover him and we can leave it there. So what we see is Noah doesn't fulfill it, but then we have creation mandate 3.0 in a person by the name of Abram. It's the Abrahamic covenant that comes. Now remember who Abram and Sarah are. That's Abraham and Sarah are. It's important to remember their context and their story. They're infertile and they're old. They can't be fruitful and multiply. And God chooses them because in choosing them, what God is declaring is, I'm going to be the one to accomplish it. I'm going to bring about a people for my praise, for my glory that will fill the earth with my glory, but I am going to do it. I'm going to take what is impossible and make it possible. And I am the means by which it will be accomplished. That's what he's declaring by choosing this couple. It's not out of random. They didn't, it wasn't win, lose, or draw. It wasn't who gets the shortest stick. It was God under his sovereignty choosing this particular couple. And this is why he chose them. He knew their state and he, he liked that. He liked it that they were weak. And in Genesis 17, God comes and he institutes the Abrahamic covenant with Abraham. It says, when Abram was 99 years old to the Lord, he appeared to Abram, Lord, save me. Like, like may, my, may my fate and calling not be the same of Abram. No more babies. That's what I'm saying. I'm just 46, but almost 46, but no more babies. We're good here. But when he's 99, he comes. And he says to him, I am God Almighty. Now notice God comes to Abram. That's the blessing of God's presence. He's blessing him. He's giving him a blessing by showing up and coming to him. And then he's saying, I am the Lord God Almighty. Here's what I want you to do. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and, and may multiply you greatly. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Then Abram fell on his face and he said to him, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. It's a lot of people. It's a multi-ethnic family that he's saying, I'm gonna institute through you that are gonna fill the earth with my glory. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but it shall be Abraham for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. 
I will make you exceedingly fruitful. Wait a minute, there's a problem. I'm 99, I haven't had a kid yet. What's the problem? But I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. That's Jesus. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you, the blessing again, and to your offspring after you. And then we have a reiteration of the covenant, the creation mandate with Abraham's grandson, a guy by the name of Jacob. We won't offend anybody here with the name Jacob. We'll leave that be again. And we'll say this about Jacob. Jacob's name is changed to Israel in Genesis 35. We see this verses nine through 11. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and he blessed him. Sounds familiar. Doing it again, Lord. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall you, your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel and God said to him, I am, <clears throat> I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come from your own body. Now that kind of leaves Genesis off and Exodus opens up. Remember how the story of Exodus begins? The story of Exodus begins with God being a covenant keeping God. God being the one who kept his promise. And what is happening in Exodus is the Israelites are in Egypt and they have done what they've multiplied exceedingly. In fact, there were so many Israelites that the greatest superpower in that day, the nation of Egypt is scared because they're, they outnumber them now. God has kept his promise. And what we see is the enemy of God, in this case, Egypt, is terrified by God's promises. That that's what's happening in, in the opening pages of, of, of Exodus, that the enemy is intimidated by the fulfillment of God's promise to multiply his people. When we talk about multiplying God's people, the enemy trembles and he comes against that because in multiplying God's people, we are multiplying the glory of God. Now let's fast forward all the way to Jesus. Right? We, that's a big jump, but all the rest of that's happening. We've talked about that in the storyline, but let's get to Jesus. First and foremost, let's say this, that Jesus fulfills all of God's commands. He fulfills all of the covenants. He is the fulfillment of the mandate that God is accomplishing everything in Jesus. All of his covenantal promises are being kept and they're being fulfilled in Jesus. And what Jesus is doing with his life is Jesus is creating a new humanity. Like we talk about, there's a lot of talk about race right now. And how do we have unity among the races and all of these kinds of questions about race. But the thing that we need to understand from a biblical perspective is Really, we, that people say, well, there's only one race, the human race. Ah, that's kind of true. There's actually two races. There is the old race under Adam that is fallen and broken and cursed and condemned and, and damned. That's what it is forever, eternally. And then there is a new race, a new man, a new humanity under Christ. The old man, the old Adam, the old race, like I said, it is cursed and it's sinful and it's broken. But the new one, is under Jesus, and it's marked by grace and by righteousness. That's Romans, the fifth chapter. Recently, I was asked, I was, uh, I was uh, a member of the point, said, hey, Andy, 
why do we uh, why do we worship on why do we worship on Sunday and not Saturday? Like, isn't the Sabbath on Saturday? Like, shouldn't we gather together as a church and worship on Saturday on the Sabbath and not on Sunday? And I was like, no, 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 no. We're not Jewish. We're not under the old covenant. We don't wear funny hats. Like, we're, there's freedom here, right? We get to wear funny masks right now, but we don't wear funny hats. Like, no. What Jesus was resurrected on the, from the dead on Sunday, the first day of the week, because what God is doing in Christ through his resurrection is he is resurrecting a new humanity. That's who Jesus is. He's starting a whole new creative order under God's blessing, divorced from and apart from the curse that's a, by grace and through faith in Christ. And so that's why we worship on the first day of the week, not the last day of the week, not the day of rest. And so that's, that's why we do it on Sunday because that's what Jesus is doing. What Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, the old has passed away. Behold, all things are new. In fact, in fact, the creative mandate, as John talks about it, John says, as Jesus gathers his disciples together, Jesus says to them, now, now receive the Holy Spirit, is what he says. And then Jesus blows on his disciples as he says this. And then he tells them, now go and, and to, to all the world, basically the same thing in Matthew 28. What, what's, what's that about? Why is Jesus blowing on his people? What's the same picture you see in Genesis 1? When God makes Adam out of the dust, and then what does God do? He breathes the breath of life into the nostrils of Adam. He's doing the same thing in his disciples saying, you are a new people. You are a new humanity. You are a new creation. He's doing the breath of life that is the Holy Spirit. So if you are regenerate, filled with the Spirit, been given new life, the old heart of stone has been removed, you've got a new heart of flesh, you're saved by your faith in Christ and his finished perfect work. You have the Holy Spirit and you are part of this new humanity. But in the same way, what we saw in Genesis 1, a reiteration of that is what's happening in Matthew, the 28th chapter with a new creative mandate for us. And that creative mandate, we looked at it in Matthew 28, 16 through 20. I told you it was also in John chapter 20, 19 through 22. It's also in Mark 16, 15. It's in Luke 24, 46 through 48. It's in Acts, the first chapter, the verse eight. We looked at it, but we're gonna stick with Matthew 28, 16 through 20. And my prayer is, is as we look at this, that it may increase our fervency for the glory of God. The context is the same as Genesis, the first chapter. It's the same as Genesis, the ninth chapter. The context is under the blessing of God and the presence of God. Notice that. Now it's at the end. So we're taking it a little bit in reverse order, but look at it with me. Um, verse number 20, actually 20b, the second part, look at what Jesus says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus is promising his disciples, this new humanity, his presence. And his presence is made manifest through the Holy Spirit in our lives. That Jesus is with us all the way to the end, all the way to Revelation 22 in the very ending pages of the Bible. Jesus is with us, those of us who are saved. And again, how is he with us? The Holy Spirit. Spirit of God is with us. We'll look at that next week when we talk about Pentecost. The empowerment for the mission is with us. Now, I wanna make sure that we understand that, that Jesus is with you. That's the, that's the context of the blessing because I want you to also think about this. We're gonna sandwich this and then we're gonna hit the middle. Let's hit the first part, look at it. 
Verse 16, we'll start there. And Jesus came and he said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Who is this one who has, whose presence is promised to be with us? This is lo, I am with you even to the end of the ages. It's the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. It's all been given to him. All authority means that Jesus is in charge. Jesus is chief. Jesus is the boss. Jesus is the king. Jesus holds all authority, all of the authority, all of the authority in heaven and all of the authority on earth has been given to Jesus. Now we have people that are in authority, positions and places of power and authority. They're entrusted with authority. Chief Chuck Adams is in our midst and among us. So straighten up, right? Chief is here and he has authority. But there is a there is an ends and a bounds to his jurisdiction uh, even. Like Chuck Adams' Chief Adams' authority, he's, he's entrusted with authority in Frankfort, Kentucky. Franklin County, not so much. Get a little further out, not so much. He's not a person of authority at Disney. The mouse is in authority in Disney, not Chief Adams, right? There he's a nobody. He's just a rider like the rest of you. He's just a well, I could go on, but I'll leave that alone. Spending your money like the rest of you, right? That's what he is there. No authority there. There is an ends and bounds to his, to his jurisdiction and to his authority. But for Jesus, Jesus' authority knows no bounds. His jurisdiction is, is unending. It's everywhere. It's no matter where you go in heaven, no matter where you go on earth, no matter where you go, Jesus is there and Jesus has full authority there. And I say that to you because as we're gonna talk about in a few minutes, we're gonna talk about the, the outward part of this mission and this mandate is for us to share our faith. We're gonna talk about evangelism. And you know what the number one obstacle to evangelism is? Fear. Fear of man. We're afraid of what are they gonna think of us? We're afraid of, you know, what are they, what are they gonna say about us? We're, we're fearful of that thing. We're, we're afraid of pressing and changing the relationship. We're fearful. And so we start off with knowing that Jesus is full of authority, not just authority to command and mandate, although he's got that authority, but no matter what you do, like ultimately he's with you and he's the one in ultimate authority. I mean, we just sang that. We just said that about Jesus, that nothing and no one can stop him. There's nothing as strong as our God. Do we believe that about him? We stir ourselves up to know that he has authority and he goes before us and he goes with us and his spirit's at work among us, that he's not just mandating this thing, but he's fulfilling this thing. He's accomplishing this thing through our efforts as we go. Now let's look at the... Let's look at the actual command in the 19th verse. Look at it. It says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. The new creation mandate can be said like this. It is for us to enjoy God and to glorify him. And again, we talk about that. That's multiplication. We're multiplying image bearers. We're multiplying here disciples, disciples who know. We're multiplying a knowledge of God that he is beautiful and that he is majestic and he's full of power and he's to be known and he's to be loved and he's to be feared and he's to be stood in awe of and he's to be enjoyed through his presence and the gospel is good news. 
It's good news that sinners like you and I can be saved. It's good news that it's not by your effort. You don't need to try harder to do better and pull yourself up by your bootstraps. But Jesus has accomplished it for you that there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus that the guilt and the weight of your sin that you feel that you can bury that in the grave with Jesus and you can walk in newness of life and you can be alive to God and you can know God and he can become a friend because he's a friend of sinners to you and he can walk with you and he will manifest his presence in your heart and in your life and he'll take your burdens and he'll take your anxieties if you cast them upon him. Like we get to talk about that. That's the glory of God that we get to make known a knowledge about who God is. So the new creation mandate is to enjoy God and to glorify him by being Christ-like disciples who make Christ-like disciples. It's just that simple. There's two actions involved. The first action is to go. Long time ago in my missions class at Boyce Bible College, a guy said, go is actually an acronym. I think G-O, and it means get out. That's what it means. Get out, go, go somewhere, go. Where are we going? We're going to all the nations. We're going everywhere. The church is on move and it's going everywhere. It's ongoing also. Like some say that go, and it really can be translated in the Greek like this, as you go, because you're going. That's the reality. You're going, you're going somewhere. Well, at least pre-COVID, we were going somewhere, not so much. Some of us are, some of us is like 2019 and whatever, right? But some of us, we're still going. What he's saying, it's on our going. As we go, in your going, make disciples. Truth is that some may stay in Frankfurt. Some may stay in Kentucky. Some may go make disciples in other parts of this wonderful state, I mean, of this wonderful nation. Others of you may go overseas. Even as I prepared this, I thought about Kenny and Cheryl Morris. Kenny preached from this pulpit a few years back. Kenny and Cheryl, they, they raised children, reared children. They reared children. They sent children out. They were empty nesters. They could have retired, and they didn't. Instead, they signed up with the IMB. That's the International Mission Board with the Baptists. They went and learned Spanish. Today, they serve in Panama, where they're planting churches, making disciples, sharing the gospel, training pastors. And the reality is, why not you? Why can't that be your story? Is it above God to send you? And we would say, no. Think about Isaiah, as Isaiah sees God high and lifted up. And then at the end of that, God, who shall go? And Isaiah cries out as a glimpse of God's glory when he saw his majestic beauty and his power. He's like, I wanna go, let me go. Let me be the one that gets to go and gets to tell of how great and how glorious you are, God. And so we say, why not you? Why not you? In Habakkuk 2.14, it says, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We're going to the nations, to the very ends of the earth. In Revelation, and maybe we'll get there, I don't remember if we'll talk about this text or not, but in Revelation, John has a glimpse of the, uh, of the throne of Jesus. It's in Revelation, um, I think, 7 is where I'm going to read from. It's also in Revelation 5. Revelation 7, he says this, John writes and says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages. And they're standing before the throne and before the lamb who's clothed in white robes with, I'm sorry, they've got white robes. They're clothed in white robes. 
They're with palm branches in their hand and they're crying out with a loud voice. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. How did they get there? How did this great multitude, how did they get there? How did some from every tribe, every nation, every people, every language, how did they get there? Well, somebody went to them, Romans the 10th chapter. Someone went and preached. Christians went and they preached and God was faithful to his promises and Jesus saved them. Bibles were translated and distributed. Churches were planted, parents instructed, the spirit persevered. That's how they got there. But it started with that first match, the first strike of that match of someone being willing to go. That is what we are called to do, to go to the nations, to go everywhere as we go, where we go, wherever it is that God would call us to go. We go, and then when we go, what do we are to do? Well, it's the second action word, it's to make. We're to make disciples. And there's two parts of discipleship, Jesus says. There is a baptizing part, and there's a teaching part. Bab, uh, disciples are made through baptizing and through teaching. The baptism is the initial act of obedience to Jesus that signifies our union with Christ. We're united with Jesus in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection, and in the newness of life. It pictures the death to our old life, the death to our flesh, the death to our sin, and being raised up to walk new as the new humanity, new in Christ. The truth is the Bible knows nothing of an unbaptized believer an unbaptized Christian. That's what, that's what we do. We get baptized. We follow Jesus. It's our, it's our public declaration that we're with Christ. It's us identifying ourselves with our, in union with Christ. Not only are we to baptize, but we're to teach. We're to teach them to obey all that Jesus has commanded. This is a lifelong process of learning and growing. The two parts of salvation are the two parts of discipleship or making disciples are salvation and sanctification. It's evangelism, we would say, and discipleship. It's the initial telling and proclamation of the gospel and then the retelling of the gospel over and over and over again with all of its implications for our lives. Now, you know how, like, as, as parents, like, you know all of your kids' stuff, don't, do you not? Like, as parents, those of us are parents, you get this, bird's eye view of your kid's life and you, you know their sinful proclivities and tendencies. You know where they're strong and you know where they're weak. And as pastors, we understand that for our congregation as well. And let me just say this, that for us as a church, we do really well when it comes to discipleship, I believe. We have a robust culture of discipleship here at the Point Community Church. And that hasn't come through accidental it's come through the way that we've established the church and built it and set it up and the things that we're beholden to and the things that we hold on to and the things that we do, the way that we preach, the way that we sing, the way that we teach, all of those things. And by God's grace, you go with us. Remember years ago, I said to my grandfather, I mean, this is 30 years ago. I said to my grandfather, I asked my grandfather who was a Baptist pastor as well. And I asked my grandpa, I said, Paul, have you read such and such book by Max Licato? And my grandfather said, no, son. He said, I don't read books by Max Licato, not because it's bad theology necessarily, but he said, because it's too popular. He said, that's what the folks in the pews are reading. And you gotta be one step ahead of the folks in your pews. And so my grandpa was a Johnny Mac guy. And that's what he's trying to tell me. Read more John MacArthur. That's what he's saying. But man, I don't know what to do with you all. 
Because you guys are reading Piper and Packer and Sproul and the Puritans. And I just recently had a lay guy in the church. Two, I can think of two men in the church. One of them asked me about, hey, would you read such and such book by J.I. Packer with me? This mug was like that thick, right? And I'm like, oh, is that what you're reading? He goes, yeah, that's what I'm reading. Let's read it together. I'm like, okay, let's do it. Another of you get, get, getting prepared for the men's Bible study on Monday night, you buy like a high shelf commentary that's got the Hebrew in it. You grab that mug, look what I'm reading. You know, I'm ready to rock and roll. I got a book on the, Joel is only like, you know, 14 chapters, but I got a book that's got 49 chapters on the book of Joel in it. I mean, what's that lead me to read? D.A. Carson? I mean, that's, that's like, like the that's like next guy I can think of, like up on the shelf. I mean, I'm going to be sitting over here reading D.A. Carson, D.A. Carson in the dictionary, because you got to look up half his words in the dictionary to know what the mug's even talking about. That's what's left for me. I enjoy that. You keep me on my A game. Like, you'll be the first to, to pick up on. If there's something I say that's off, you'll be like, hey, did you know it? Week in and week out, most of you, you endure 45 plus minutes of me preaching from the Bible, expositional preaching, and you continue to come. 50-something women in Dee's weekly Bible study right now. Kidding me? Got 15 men on Monday evening Bible study, tuned in. Last year, we decentralized our DNA groups. That's our discipleship groups. And yet many of you, you're like, forget it. We're gonna keep on meeting. Some of you have been in the midst of a global pandemic. Some of you have been meeting via some virtual method. And now some of you have even moved into meeting at restaurants with masks on to study God's word. Praise the Lord for that. We have a fervor when it comes to discipleship. A robust, a, a, a robust culture here. But the truth is, I believe we need to grow in our fervor of a culture of evangelism here. My desire is to see our culture of evangelism and our fervor for evangelism to match our fervor of discipleship. It's a place of growth for us. You may say like, I don't, is that true? I think it's true of us. I think it's true of us. And it's not coming from a place of like, well, I don't want people to be saved. I understand that. Like, I, I know our hearts. I know that it's not coming from a, from a lack of love. I know that it's not coming from, a, from, from sinful motivation. At least I believe it's not coming from sinful motivation. I think it's coming more from, from ignorance and possibly comfort than it is from the sinful motivation. I don't think it's coming from an elitist mentality where you say, hey, it's just, the church is just for us four and no more. If we invite a bunch of people in, then it's gonna change our church. It's gonna change our field. It may change my community. I don't think that you think that. I hope it's not coming from a place of selfishness with your own life, with your own community, where you approach it with a very closed mind, closed eyes, closed fists, closed ears to the world around you. I hope it's not just coming from personal comfort and complacency or busyness with your own life. I know most of you, you're like, hey, tell me what to do in the Bible. I mean, tell me what to do and I'll do it. I think that's most of your attitude. Like, no, I wanna see the nations be reached for Jesus' glory. I wanna see this community around us where God has sovereignly placed us be reached with the glory. I wanna see my friends and my loved ones who have yet to profess faith in Christ. I want them to see them come to Christ. I desire that and I want that. And I, so just tell me what to do. Tell me what to do and I'll go and do it. I think that's most of our attitude. But listen, listen, the attitude is a problem. Our attitude, I think, is what must change. That in the Bible, commands flow from identity. 
We just talked about this as we've been um, cutting the, the Starting Point podcast. So for years in past, Starting Point was a class that we offered, but due to COVID, we thought, hey, it may be a better format to put this down onto uh, some kind of audio version where you can listen to it. So myself and the elders and some other individuals, we put that together. Both served us to edit and record and put all of that out there. And so now we have six about 30-minute sessions of starting point. Some of you are listening to it. Some of you are listening to it because you want to become members of the church. Others of you who are members, I would highly encourage you to listen to it again. Just It was great for me to remind me of why this church was planted and who we are to be and who we desire to be. It's fantastic. And so you can go however you listen to podcasts, put in starting point podcast, and you'll find it. I said, there's, I think there's five of them up, but all six are recorded. They're there. In one of the sessions, we talk about this very thing that throughout the Bible, the commands of God, they flow from identity, that being precedes doing. So don't start off with, hey, tell me what to do and we'll do it. No, back up from that and think, who are you? Who does the gospel declare you to be? The imperatives of what we are to do, they always flow from the indicatives of what God has done in us. Tell me what to do. Okay, start here. Be a missionary. Because Matthew 28 is for the church, every member of the church, not just those elitist special forces jokers called missionaries. We think of missionaries, we think of those types of people, don't we? That's what I think of when I think of missionaries. I've got friends who are missionaries and I'm like, there's no way I can do what they do. There's no way I can go overseas and raise children and live in China for 10 years in a culture that I can barely communicate. I'm trying my hardest to communicate I could eat the food there, but nevertheless, except for dog, I couldn't do that. But nevertheless, I could eat most of the food there. But living away from my family would be so difficult. My mom, my dad, my brothers and sisters. I think like, how do they do it? But the reality is every born again believer in Jesus, you are a missionary. You're called to live out the mission of God. And as being a missionary, what it means is I want you to think and to pray as a missionary would. It starts with a desire to be somebody who lives to embody and obey the Great Commission in everything. It is to live intentionally in your relationships. Listen, there is a place for personal evangelism. That is an implication where we are sharing the gospel with our neighbors and our friends. But even more importantly than that, although that is super important, I maybe shouldn't even word it like that, equally as important as that is us creating a culture of evangelism here. And you go, Andy, what do I mean by that? Well, it would take me 100 pages to read you this book for you to understand it. Or what you could do is you could read this book. I highly commend it. It's a series of books by Nine Marks called Building Healthy Churches. They're colored, all different colors, and they're fantastic books. And this is one of them on how a church can build out a culture of evangelism. It's called evangelism, how the church uh, speaks of Jesus. It's by a joker by the name of J. Max Stiles. Here is a pretty good guy. Read it. Fantastic. We can talk about it. I would love that. There is a place for personal evangelism. That's an implication of this great commission. But more than that, we want to build collectively as a church. We want to build a culture of evangelism. How do we do that? Three things, and then we'll go. We're going to do that as we think about this. I want us to think about the mission that Christ has given us, the mandate, the new creation mandate. I want us to think about it with three different focuses. The first focus would be an upward focus. 
And the upward focus is for us to love God and to live for him. It's to be red hot with a fervor for the glory and the renown of God. Because that's what happened when people get saved. God's glory is multiplied because somebody else knows about him and worships him and loves him. And that's where we begin. Not even a fear of hell for those people, although that's important. But bigger than that, out of a love for God and a desire to live for him and a desire to see his glory being multiplied. The next one is an usward focus. I don't even know that usward is a word. But what I mean by usward is us as a church. Our call is to love one another. And lastly is the outward focus of what we really think about when we think about the Great Commission, which is to make disciples. I'll hit them quickly. First one is the upward focus. The upward focus starts with you and I being Christ-like disciples ourselves. It's hypocrisy to try to make somebody something that you're not. And so the first question is, is are you a Christ-like follower? Now, not that we're ever perfect in this, but are you being a sanctified? Are you, are you working in conjunction with the power and the spirit of God, with the, yeah, with the spirit of God under the power of God to be a sanctified believer? Again, we're never gonna be perfect. This is not, but this is about our intention and our direction. We're desiring to be holy as he is holy. Are you a learner? Are you constantly learning more and more about God in order to tell more and more people about him? Knowing more about God in order to love God and to know him and to glorify him. How are you ever gonna love somebody? How are you ever gonna share about somebody that you don't know? So start there. We can even back up and ask the question, are you saved? Are you saved? Have you been baptized? Salvation isn't just you trying to live a better life, a more moral life. Salvation isn't about you getting your priorities squared away and straight. Salvation is not quitting a few bad habits. Salvation is coming to the realization that there was nothing that you can do to save yourself. You needed a savior. Salvation isn't you, again, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, trying harder and doing better. That is not salvation living a more moral life. That is not salvation. Salvation is you crying out to a savior, save me because I cannot do anything because the reality is that is the reality. You are dead in your trespasses and your sins. You can color a corpse up any way that you want to, right? Think about weekend with Bernie. You got Bernie out there and he's doing all the things. And that's a lot of you trying to live your life, but you're not genuinely saved. You're as dead as Bernie. And you're just going through the motions of life. So the first thing is, are you saved? Have you recognized that? Have you bent your knee, bowed your knee before a savior and said, save me? Starts off with you recognizing that, recognizing that in humility, coming to Jesus in that. The next focus I said was an usward focus. The upward focus is personal. The usward focus is corporate. The enemy has repeatedly used the hypocrisy of those who profess to be Christians, but yet they live and they love just like the world to undermine the gospel. Jesus has already de declared it. 
We talked about it just a few weeks ago. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, that you have love for one another. We're to teach what Jesus has commanded us. Remember, that's what the implication of discipleship is. As we go, we're baptizing, and then we're teaching people. And what has Jesus commanded us? Generally, for most of us, that usually starts with, we think about it as far as the moral imperatives. We talk about how we are to live, but Jesus summed up all of the 613 commands in the Old Testament into two. Here are the greatest commands, he said. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depends the whole law and the prophets. What are we teaching people? We're teaching them how to love God and how to love one another. And there's a part of it where we say, watch us do this. Watch me how I love God and worship God and live for God and spread the glory of God and watch us usward as a community of people, as we love one another, that our gathering should be marked by love. In scriptures, we're told to love one another. We're told to stir one another for love and good works. That's the purpose of the gathering is to stir ourselves up so that we may love Jesus and love each other more and more. We're called to a sacrificial love. Let me just say this, that hospitality is one of the lowest expressions of biblical love. Last week or uh, two weeks ago, maybe it was, we defined love like this. We said that biblical love is a warm regard for another evidenced in a self-sacrificing, caring commitment to seek the highest good of the one loved. We'll leave that up there for a minute. That we understand there is a sacrificial component in love and there is, but listen to me, hospitality. Just being, just saying hello and good morning and welcoming people and welcoming people into restaurants and welcome people as it's safe, even into your home. That is the lowest expression of biblical love. I've said this before, but imagine, imagine your loved one who doesn't know Jesus yet. And I think we all have them. And this morning, your loved one decided to go to a church. Not this church, but they decided to go to a church. What, ex- what, what, what kind of experience would you want them to have as they walked into that place? What would you want them to see and experience and feel as they were in that place? And now, have you done that in order for you to make that someone else's loved one that may be in our midst, their experience? You want them to come into a place where they felt welcomed, wanted, invited, encouraged. You want them to come into a place where you could say, hey, look at us and look at the way we worship Jesus. We're red hot in fervor and in love for Jesus. We believe what we're singing. Can, look, look, can you see through the veil, right? Can you see through the mask? There's a smile on my face. You want them to be waved at, maybe greeted as they walked outside, maybe invited to lunch or something. You would want that, wouldn't you not? And then there is the outward focus where we make disciples and we evangelize and we disciple. We are Christ-like disciples who are making Christ-like disciples. That if we aren't making disciples who make disciples, then what the heck are we doing? One of our former elders, John Martin, he had a, he's got a saying, he says, he says like, we're just buttering grapes. I mean, that's like the most, 
futile thing that you can kind of think of. The most foolish thing that you could think of is taking a grape and trying to spread butter on it. Like, why would anybody do that? I don't know. I don't know why he says it, but it's actually a great picture. Because if we're not making disciples who make disciples church, then we're just butter and grapes in here. We're just wasting our time. It'd be like a doctor who opened up his practice and then just said, hey, you know what? I'm only gonna see well patients. Well, what the heck are you doing? It's what Jesus said. It's the sick who need a physician. And you and I, we're in here sharing the good news week and week out so that repentant sinners can come in and hear the good news and then go out and make disciples of others who will repent and believe the gospel. Church, never underestimate the power of invitation. Never never underestimate the power of invitation. Most of you who found your way here, not by a Facebook advertisement, not by an evangelistic event, but most of you found your way here or found your way into the faith because a friend invited you. Because a friend maybe shared the gospel with you. You better believe it because a friend prayed for you or a mom or a dad or a grandmother or a grandfather prayed for you. May we be that kind of church. Let's pray. Jesus, when I think about this church that you've entrusted to the elders of this church and you've called together, I'm so reminded of the church at Ephesus, a church that loves theology, a church that doesn't tolerate false teachers, a church that genuinely loves one another, but we could be in danger of loving our fervor, our white-hot love for your glory and your renown be thwarted. Lord, may it not be. May you use the truths of your scripture to remind us of what we're called to be and called to do, which is to make disciples who make disciples. May we fan into flame the gift that's been given to us, which is the Holy Spirit. May we be reminded of those that are around us who are on our trajectory to go into a Christless eternity. May we have a fervor for your glory, God, wanting to see it be spread, your renown and your fame, wanting more and more people to see and to know the majestic beauty that you are, to flourish. Even in the midst of suffering that we as Christians, we we flourish with joy because of you, because you are our prize, because you are our ends, because what is man? He can only destroy this body. What is this curse? It can no longer, we are no longer under this, but we, we come to know you and love you and rightly fear you. Know that that is our eternity and that is our home, Jesus. May we not be sidetracked by the politics of this world and the games of this world and the fallenness and the brokenness of this world, but may we have our eyes fixed upon you. And we're going but may there be an end to our going. May all of our going be rolled up upward. May we be busy about the mandate that you've given us for your fame and your glory. I pray this in your name, amen.